always exciting when you sit in the front row and uh, you start the service and you don't get to turn around until a few minutes later there's more people. That's really great. Well, welcome. Okay, we're going through the uh, book of Titus this uh, next few Sundays. And so uh, if you have the time, the opportunity during the week, just read through those three chapters and do it a few times during the next couple of, of, of weeks. Because the more you're aware, uh, familiar with the text, it'll be maybe you can start thinking about things and trying to, uh, to be encouraged just by the words that Paul wrote to Titus. And also as we talk about them uh, here on Sundays, then you'll be able to uh, maybe be more familiar with those texts. So the letter of Paul to Titus. Now, there's a... Um, uh, the situation is that Paul and Titus had been on Crete, and Paul had uh, started some churches there. Actually, the churches probably were uh, started by people that had been to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so this is probably 30 years, uh, 20 or 30 years later, and so all kinds of Christians are on this island of Crete, and there's uh, a problem that there's no really good organization in those churches. And so Paul uh, is sending one of his trusted uh, disciples and encouraging him to be, uh, to go to these different cities on Crete and help establish the, the church structure. And so we're going to be looking at uh, just this law, this letter that Paul writes to to uh, the uh, Timothy, uh, Titus, that's in, in there. So I have this one little overview, it's sort of hard to read all this stuff, but this is one by, I had a pastor uh, back, in, back in the days when I was in the States, uh, a guy named Charles Spindall. He ends up being one of the, the premier pastors in America, and so he's written a lot of stuff and does a lot of Bible studies. And so I did a chart, a little overview of the book of Titus. And so I'd like to share that with you, like this, divided into three different uh, chapters, and each chapter is sort of the, the uh, broken broken down in this way to where uh, it's the first chapter if you look right down here in this line here is looking at elders and rebellious people in chapter one and then it's elders and enemies setting up right leadership and so the purpose of chapter one is trying to set up the right type of leadership that's going to be the church how do you choose leaders the second chapter is going to be, he's given advice to different types of people. So it's instructions for particular people. So he has, uh, for men and women, for young women and men, for uh, Titus and uh, all the leaders, and to slaves and masters. What kind of relationships are they supposed to have with one another? And what advice is uh, Paul giving to Titus to instruct uh, these people? And then the last chapter, chapter 3, is doing right. What to do, what not to do. Christians in general, attitude and conduct towards good and bad. And so basically we have these three chapters and each of them, each one has a emphasis. And so uh, setting up right leadership, instruction for particular people, and an attitude and conduct towards good and evil. So those are the, basically a basic overview of this book that we're looking at. And so we're going to spend some time with it. And then, for some reason, 
this didn't come up in my in my slide. I had a division of where I have uh, a column with these first three chapters, well, one, two, and three, and then another person's title for the chapter. And so it's supposed to be. I know they're there, but it's not how I set it up. I set it up in two different columns. It's not. I'll see. I'll also see how this goes. But so. Charles Swindoll, he says, setting up the right leadership. A guy named Brian Billingson, setting and ordered things that were lacking in the church. So both of them could see that they were going to be talking about leadership and how to set it up. Chapter 2, instructions for particular people. Chapter 2, how to minister to various kinds of people in the church. The third, an attitude and conduct towards good and evil. Living out the truth of the Christian life by doing good, good, good works. And so these are two different men's uh, outline or, or, or titles for these chapters. And so the theme that we can see for Titus is Titus's role in encouraging right living through sound doctrine. So that's how we can apply it to ourselves when we look at this. How do we live our lives in the world today? Now we'll see later on in this chapter, in chapter 1, that the Cretans were not really a very well-regarded uh, people in Europe. They were uh, known to be liars and, and you couldn't trust them. And Paul even says, well, that testimony is true. That the Cretans basically had a bad reputation. And he's basically quoting from a, a poet of the time that was very well known throughout uh, the Roman world. And the Cretans did not have a good reputation. And so it also had carried over into the church. So the Christians on Crete were acting like ordinary Cretans. And so Paul says, well, this should not be you're not supposed to be of the world, you're supposed to be different. And so he's really encouraging Titus to instruct in that. Now, I chose this as the key verse for me. Verses for me when I was looking read through Titus several times. And this is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and world desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So why are we here as Christians, if we're trying to apply this to ourselves? Well, he's writing to us to where we're supposed to deny ungodliness and world desires. And so how are we to live? Sensibly, righteously, and godly. So that's the encouragement for us. That's how we're to live. That's how Paul is encouraging Titus to tell the Cretans to live, well, we can apply that to us today, of how we live 
as someone living in Old Morgan in 2017. Were people of his own possession zealous for good deeds? So there's always this, this um, tension between the uh, works, works and faith. So this is a very strong book about how we are supposed to live, how, we're, how our deeds are supposed to be reflective of what we believe. And so because these people are believers, their lives should also represent that. So living right through sound doctrine, you know who you are, and you should live the way. And how do we know? It's by listening to what God teaches us. Now here's an interesting, uh, one of the commentaries I was reading, he uh, sort of uh, said, well, the book of Titus, uh, book of the letter of Titus is writing to a place to where there's a, a lot of problems. There's a mess. Things aren't working right. But you need to get things, you need to work in order to make it right. And so to do that, it's going to be messy. And so there's a prophet that says, where no ox are, the manger is clean. But much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. So, the thing is, if you want to have a clean, orderly place, don't a barn. You can make it real clean and look really nice. The floors are swept, the hay is in the right place. There's no, you know, stuff on the floor. But it doesn't do any good because you can't get the job done if you have an ox. It's going to live there. You have to feed it. It has to be maintained, and it's going to make it messy. And so our life is not going to be perfect, everything in the right place. But doesn't mean that it's bad to be messy. So we have to be able to understand that in order to get the job done that God wants you to do, you actually can't try to make things perfect. You have to go out and do it. You have to work. You can have a clean place like Christian, your daughter's room would be very nice if she wasn't there. <laughs> but because you have a living girl in that room, it's not going to look as orderly. So that's life. Our lives are messy, but they're still structured. So where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of an ox. So if you want to see your life grow in Christ. You have to be in the action. You have to allow him to work through you. Hopefully this makes sense. Okay. This might work. Okay. Paul, a bond servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to Godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In our Bibles, we have four verses. In the Greek, 
It's one sentence. This is one very complex sentence in the Greek. And so we're going to look at this and uh, what I thought there's sections in each one of these. And so I found a guy named Brian Bell and he actually uh, took, you can see seven different little clauses that he's broken down for us. And so we're going to look at this passage through that uh, prism. So first, we look at who's writing the letter and how Paul, we all know who Paul is. This, the word Paul, the name means little. And so this is this little disciple of God, of Christ, whose name in his time was Saul, a very proud, strong person. But when he became a follower of Christ, he was given the name Paul, little. So how does Paul perceive himself? And so he perceived himself as a slave, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see that Paul, how does he identify himself? As a servant, as a bondservant. And so a lot of times when we look at this term, it's good to go back and look at the Old Testament and see what a servant is, a slave, is in the context of a, a Jewish person. And we can see this in Exodus. Uh, chapter 21, verses 2 through 6. He says this. This is the Hebrews, a Jewish person having a slave. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years, but on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, then he shall bring him to the door of the, of, or a doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him permanently. So here is a man that's been a slave, he's been given his freedom, but by his own free will, told his master, I want to serve you forever, permanently. And so this is what the, the term that we have in the English Bible, bond servant means. It's one that willingly yields himself to the Lordship of Christ and allows himself in this sense to have his ear pierced, showing that he permanently belongs to his master. So this is what, how Paul identifies himself as a slave, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus. So he not only calls himself a, a slave, a bond slave of Christ, he also says, and a messenger, and an apostle of Christ, of Jesus Christ. And so we know the story about how Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus, and he met Christ. And then he was blinded, and he went and he sat with Ananias, and Ananias laid his hands on him, and he prayed, and he received his sight back. And then Paul was given a commission by God, by Jesus Christ, saying, you're going to be my messenger to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so Paul, Paul looks at himself as being one being sent out 
by Jesus Christ to proclaim his message. And so Paul sees himself as a slave to Christ and also as his sent one. Now each one of us that belong to Christ, we have this one verse that we, that we have in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It is very straightforward in teaching how we are in relationship to the Lord Jesus. In one sense, it's talking about our sexual freedom, whatever that is. But also I think there's a more deeper understanding. It says in chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are no, that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So I think this is where we can look at how Paul has made this example of how he's perceived himself as being a slave and a messenger of the Lord. So we too, in a sense, should have that calling on our lives if we are a follower of Christ. We're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. So if someone who has been purchased by another, what is that? That's a slave. And so, in a sense, we are to be, do I perceive myself as being a slave of Christ in that sense? Just as Paul sees himself as being a bondservant, or am I in control of my life? Am I the one in charge? I'm also to be one that tells others about Jesus. My life is supposed to be one that is salt and light, where people can look at me, watch my life. And then if someone comes and asks, I will be able to give an answer to why I have that hope within me. So, in a sense, not only Paul is a slave and messenger, so we too are. So, understand your identity. Do you know who you are? So that's the first point. The next is, for the faith of those chosen of God. This is a big topic. And we're going to use a couple minutes on it. Being chosen of God. Whoa, I thought I chose God. Someone told me about Jesus and I didn't believe in him and then all of a sudden I believed in him. Growth in godliness. And he's talking about the elect. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Okay, you're chosen and because God chose you, you're also living a godly life. Elect. God has chosen you. This is one of those mysteries that we can't understand. It's very difficult. Because we all have our own wills. Here's one quote from a guy named Hybert. Although Hebert, what did I say? Hebert. 
Even Robert Harry. Although sounded, surrounded with mystery, the biblical teaching on election assures faith, struggle believers, that their salvation is all of God from beginning to end. If salvation was based on how good you could perform, how good I could perform, oh, watch out. We all fail. It's based upon what God has done. And so this is, although it's a very deep subject, and each one of us need to respond to the, when we hear the call of the Lord, from our viewpoint, we respond. And that's what we're to do. But this is a topic that is so big and mysterious. It's hard for us to understand. But we are chosen of God. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's Jesus' words. Godliness is a process that is a disciplined life, a living discipline. But we have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline, dis discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So it means there's an active problem on our side. If you say, I believe in Jesus, He's my Savior and Lord. I've been born anew. I'm a child of God. If you say that, well then your life is going to live that out. You don't fall off, you don't climb up the top of a building and that happens to be a fabric company and fall into it and come out the door rolling out in a whole new suit. <laughs> There's something that has to happen between that process. There's sewing stuff, cutting, that kind of stuff. That's what our life is. We don't, just because we're a, a believer, we're, it's in a process we have to follow. Read Hebrews. Read Romans. Read, read what we're reading here in Titus. There's a process of our willingness to yield to our Lord and Master. We're not saved by our works, but our works will declare who we are. Titus talks about good deeds. These are the way we're supposed to act. Not because the way we're acting will save us. It's because if we are true believers, we will act accordingly. We are willing to pay that price. I can't say that I've ever known a man or woman who came to spiritual maturity except through discipline. Why is it important for us to be involved in a church fellowship? Be part of a body? Why is it necessary for us to study God's Word and try to understand and live it out? because we are in a disciplined process. If you want to be an Olympic athlete and you're a very good runner, you don't just don't get up out of bed and walk up to the, the race and run and hope to win. You have to train to do that. So there's discipline involved in it. 
you're not saved because of your discipline. But if you're a follower of Christ, you will have a disciplined life. In 1 Corinthians, we read about three different kinds of people. There are those that are unsaved, there are those that are Christians that are maturing, and they're what they call fleshly Christians, ones that are living after their own desires but not following Christ. As a Christian, you can be one that is being disciplined and growing in your faith, or be rebellious. We're encouraging you to be in the process of being disciplined, discipled. Okay, understanding your identity, growth in godliness. Then we go on. In the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life. Do you have hope? I hope that I pass the exam next week. No, that's not hope in the biblical sense. Here's the definition. Hope, as used in the Bible, is synonymous with absolute certainty. It's the idea of looking ahead eagerly with confident expectation. Looking into the future should accelerate godly living today. Do you believe that Christ is coming back? Do you believe that he's preparing for you a place in heaven? Do you believe that he's promised you to have a life of more than abundant here and now? Doesn't mean with money, it means with the riches of his glory in your life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life begins now. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. You believe in the one that God has sent and you have eternal life. You have to enjoy eternal eternity now and the hope is that oh I hope that it's going to happen. No. Hope is the assurance you know it's going to happen. You put your faith and trust into it. You, have, you, don't see, you don't see it physically, but you believe it because who has given you that promise? Jesus himself has given that. I skipped one. What's going on here? Go back one, number four, which says... In which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. Counting on God's character. We have this just a little bit. I think I have a hope of this passage there. Yeah. Galatians 4 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, into the law. So that he might redeem those who were under law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. But when the fullness of time came, God has a plan. He knows what's going on. He has a schedule. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation. There's a time and a season. And God knows it. And it's happening now. Waiting in the sunshine of his love is what will ripen the soul for his blessing. One more time. Waiting in the sunshine of his love is what will ripen the soul for his blessing. Waiting under the cloud of trial that breaks in the showers of blessing is as needful. It's not just sunshine. You also need to have the clouds around. Be assured that if God waits longer than you wish, it only is, is only to make the blessing doubly precious. Now, most of us do not want to say amen to that because it makes life difficult. Andre Murray is one of these great guys from the early 1900s that wrote a lot of books about this. About prayer life mechanism. God's timing. Mm. It's timing for you. Do you know? Here we talk about it a lot. But do you know him? Behold. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today you can call upon him, and he can be your Savior. Okay. Counting on God's character, first of all, which God does not lie. We know this. This is part of his character. How did Jesus describe Satan as the father of lies? He's the opposite of the lies. So God does not lie. He's given us promises. And then we have a problem. Of, can we trust God in his timing? But at the proper time, manifested even his word. It's really great if you just read the first couple of verses of Hebrews. About how God's timing is. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us all in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the world. In these last days he spoke. There were previous times, there's now. At the proper time, he manifests even his word. Giving primacy, giving primacy to proclamation. Okay. In the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. 
Paul's main purpose was to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and also to build the church to be one of the primary forces that God would use to build the church. That's why he had those three missionary journeys that we read about in Acts. That's why we have this wonderful book we call the Bible is because he wrote so many letters to those churches that he had established. And it was his hope that all men would come to believe. When you read a couple of his sermons in Acts, he wishes that all come to believe that Jesus is the risen Christ. And people will put their faith in him. What are we to do? We're also to tell others about him. How then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without preaching? So again, this is to us too. We have that opportunity to tell others about it. Lynn and Bill Heibels, they wrote a book, We Discovered the Church, a few years ago. And what is the main purpose of the church? We believe that anointed teaching is the primary catalyst for transformation in the lives of individuals and the church. From, pres from preparation to presentation, it can change sinners into saints. Danger works whenever we depend on anything else. What is the purpose of gathering together? Is this to be a show? Entertainment? No, it's to receiving teaching from the Word to encourage us to fill this up, to admonish us, to exhort us. That when we go out those doors, that we will be salt and light in the world that we're in. And that also that God is in the process of transforming our lives to become more and more like Him. So there's an importance about why we gather together. So giving primacy to the proclamation. And lastly, committed to what we have in common. To Titus, my true child, in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So Titus, <coughs> Paul's writing to, is someone that Paul looks like led to the Lord. So he's a result of his proclamation of the gospel. And so he's his child in this common faith. But that's our common faith. It's not something that is hierarchical where you have some people that are super saints and other people that are uh, less worthy. But in the common faith, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So we have this common faith. We're part of something that is bigger than ourselves because we're part of the body of Christ. And it's something we have together. 
this common faith. And then because we have that common faith, we can ask for and receive grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace. Undeserved riches at Christ's expense. Why are you saved? It's because I'm such a good person. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, because I'm such a good person and I deserve to be saved. No. We're all worthy. We've all sinned, fallen short of God's glory. Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, and we've been freely given to us as a gift by God the Father. Our response is to, to receive that gift and to say thank you. It's God's grace. It's God's initiative. Peace. The only real peace that you can have is when we have a right relationship with God. And that's through our relationship with Christ Jesus. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also be, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you said this common faith. What are we supposed to show? What's supposed to be a, I use the word attribute, or a evidence of our following of Christ, of our being joined with him, is that we will fulfill Hopefully, this prayer that he had. Christ's prayer. The verse that we have as our model in Koinonia. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that's one of the reasons why we gather together. And we hope that is will be maintained. Is that we follow the teaching of God's word. We gather around that. This is the main thing. It's not we're going to take another book and try to follow. But we'll preach and teach from the word of God. We have fellowship. Koinonia. Break bread together. We have communion. Which is a symbol of how we are part of the same body of Christ. And then also we have prayer. So hopefully that will be true in our fellowship. So with these seven things, understanding your identity. Do you know who you are? Are you growing in Godness? Because you're one of the elect God has chosen you. Are you enjoying eternity right now? It's something that we have a hope for and promised that we'll live our entire eternity with God and be in His presence. But it begins right now. Are you standing upon the promises of God's character? What He said is truthful. He will fulfill his promises. Trusting in God's timing. 
Are we giving primacy to proclamation? Are we telling our friends about the Lord Jesus? Are we living a life that allows us to have a platform where we can say, yes, I follow Jesus. Commit to what we have in common. Now remember, this one right here, this is one of my big experiences in life. It's when I was working at an airplane factory in America. And I'd worked there for several years, and I had a colleague, and occasionally I would share Christ with him, talk about Jesus, talk about how I really had put my faith and trust in Christ. And uh, at one time we were in a good conversation, and so I just asked him, I thought it was a proper time, well, what have you thought? Have you, what was keeping you from turning your life over to Christ and, and saying yes to him? And then he said this. I haven't stopped watching you yet. I Wait a minute. Uh, you're watching me to see <laughs> before you become a Christian. He wants to see it. Is it authentic? Is it real? He wanted to see if what I was talking about was the way I actually lived. And so it's only by God's grace that people are saved. I don't know if he ever became a Christian or not. But it's something that just really... To this day, I can remember, this is what, 40 years ago, having that conversation. Of how important is, to our, is our life. We're not to be perfect, but we're supposed to be authentic in our walk. I was listening to a fellow just the other day, and he says, what people are looking for today, young people, they're looking for three things. They're looking for community, they're looking for justice, and they're looking for authenticity. Authenticity. How do you say it? Authenticity. Yeah, you can say it just good. <laughs> authenticity. <laughs> Real people. People that act the way they talk. But the first one is community. They want to be a part of something. Justice, well, depends on what you understand as justice is. Because our world is being taught an inappropriate definition of justice. But I'm seeking justice. But also I'm a person. But we want to live in a just world. We want to act justly. And also authenticity, I can't say. That's the challenge for us as Christians. Are we living what we say? And so that we can say we're not perfect. We're in a process. This is a pro Disciple, we're being disciplined. We're being discipled. It's a process. Like, I would love that every little kid in here would not run around and scream. They're a little kid. They're growing up. But they're human. Sometimes. And so that's the way we are in our Christian life. We're in a process of growing up. But the sad part is, if you're You've been a Christian for 10 years and you're still theoretically in diapers. That's not a good thing. Grow. Dear Lord, just thank you that we just use a few moments to go through these four verses in Titus. Help them to be something that encourages us to be 
ones that want to follow you with all our hearts, mind, soul, and body. And we want to yield ourselves to you. Help us to be ones that will say, yes, I put my faith and trust in you with all my heart. Transform my life to be one that's pleasing to you. Thank you that I know that I can't do myself, but thank you for the Holy Spirit that now dwells within me and is in the process of changing me to be more and more like you. Help me to be willing to be in your school, to be instructed. Help me to choose to follow you every day. Thank you that you forgive me for my failings. And thank you that I can come to you and say, Abba, Father, my dear Father, thank you that you love me. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and his example. And thank you that he has promised us this wonderful life with you. Dear Lord, help us be authentic in our walk. In Jesus' name.